and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and you are listening to a discussion of Make Way for Winged Eros, an essay that I have read over the last five episodes. So if you haven't listened to the essay, please go back. Uh, this is a podcast of 47 selections of the works of Alexander Kollontai, and this essay, Make Way for Winged Eros, uh, from 1923, sort of the key distillations of one of her ideas about the relationship between love, romance, and political economy. And so today with me here at the University of Pennsylvania, I have a graduate student and an artist, Elisheva Levy, who is going to talk a little bit about uh, the way that Alexandra Kollontai's work has sort of influenced her thinking about architecture and housing from a socialist perspective. She's a PhD student here at the uh, Penn School of Design. So I would love to just have you kind of, you know, think a little bit about this idea that if we lived in a more socialist society and we had connections with lots of other people rather than just our romantic partner, rather than living in like a private little home with one other partner and our children, how that would change our idea of love and romance in the future. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe the best way to, to start is to talk about my own uh, personal life, um, because I feel like this my life experience has brought me to this endeavor from the first place. So I'm married. I have three little children and um, we struggle, I guess, like any other couple who have little children struggling with careers and with the daily chores. And it's pretty obvious that my husband and I kind of operate, you know, somewhat like alone in the world. We have to take care of the family, the bills, the kids. Um, and it's as everybody knows, it's it's super stressful. And then, so this the the relationship between me and my husband is kind of this relationship of of this like business relationship where we have to kind of solve problem solving all day long. And so this this really brought me to to have this kind of idea that this kind of solitary life as a couple is by definition, let's say, non romantic because you're so invested in trying to make a life and trying to make things work that actually you expect your partner like to be problem solving with you. So it kind of pushes the romance, the love, the passion into a different, much more minor kind of position. And Alexander Kollontai, uh, meeting her writing through uh, through you, <laughs> was is very, very enlightening to me because um, she has this really radical idea um, about sex with comrades. So this idea that instead of having this like exclusive relationship with one person, you would have many more relations, not necessarily sexual, but also sexual with other people and many people. And you would have a much wider milieu of people who are kind of taking care of each other. And for me, that's a really exciting idea because, um, yeah, just like in the most personal, in the personal, the most personal prospects that has. And in in the Soviet Union, um, after the revolution, there was a big effort to try and make living conditions for people to, to change the circumstances so that people wouldn't be kind of alone, struggling by themselves, and to have this kind of more wider network of people living together. And then, okay, so there were a few different kinds of um, living arrangements. One of them, which I'm most interested in, is the comunalka. Comunalka is a kind of communal housing situation in which big apartment houses, well, I'm specifically interested in the one in um, in uh, St. Petersburg, apartments of the rich, big apartments, fancy apartments of rich people 
were confiscated by civilians after the revolution, during the revolution, and after the revolution. And these big apartments were redivided. So instead of housing one family, they would now house 10 families, 15 families, sometimes five families, but many families. So each each family got one room, and then the kitchen was shared, and the bathroom was shared, and the hallway was shared. So a lot has been said about how hard it is to live under these conditions, waiting for the bathroom, waiting in line for the bathroom cooking in a joint kitchen, waiting waiting for space. But on the other hand, millions of people have lived, have lived this way. So some of the numbers I've read is 300 million people lived in the Comunalka uh, over the Soviet period and after the Soviet period. So let's say for the past 90 years, and people are still living in Comunalkas, although the situation has changed and now um, it's they've been privatized, but still some 100,000 Comunalkas still exist in St. Petersburg. And so can you talk a little bit about, like, given there's all these negative stereotypes about the Comunalca, right, but the idea of Kolontai is that if you live in a wider social network, that's that, that there's a lot more social support for, like, the elderly or ch- yes. ch- child care. And that particularly for women, maybe, if you lived in a shared house with other families... Uh, you could actually go out and shop and leave your kids behind because some other mother would be around or the elderly wouldn't be as isolated as they often are. Did you yeah. Have you read about that in your research? Or? Yes, and also I think people don't understand how... I mean, some people don't understand how, how difficult it is still. I mean, birth rates are dropping. I know that lots of young people do not want to have kids and it's because it seems like it's too hard to have kids because people think that today women have... Uh, or parents have the same, uh, there's like this, people imagine there's like these equalities, women go to work, women can do like whatever they need, whatever they want. But actually under this situ- circumstances of individual households trying to pay the mortgage, pri- trying to um, to do all the, um, you know, just like to meet the, to make ends meet, somehow this individual household isn't really sustainable. And if you look at the Comunalca where you have much less, uh, you own much less, and a lot more is shared. So women have the opportunity, and also fathers, if if they if they take upon themselves this role, they have the opportunity to to explore other, you know, other other things. Yeah, and to kind of, if somebody is sick, somebody will call the doctor for you, or if somebody, if a kid is hungry, somebody will feed him. So there's really interesting blogs, and I mean, there's so many blogs and internet sites that show kind of this life in the Comunalca as being... So no, nobody can go hungry because everybody will see that he's hungry. And nobody can go sick because people will see that he's sick. So the other thing, you know, so this idea... I remember talking to you about this last semester about jealousy. Jealousy. Right, yeah. which is that if, like, one of the arguments against Colin Tai is that it's somehow unnatural for us to love lots of people, right? Yeah. And there's been really interesting research, for instance, on things like alloparenting, where we know that children are actually really well-raised if they have lots of adults mm-hmm. looking after them rather than just their biological mother and father, that, like, a wider network of adults is actually mm-hmm. robust and healthy for children. And, you know, we've long known that grandparents can substitute or aunts and uncles, right? We, we have this long thing. but And so we're, we're kind of open to the idea of, like, having our children have multiple relationships with other adults. But we're not often open to the idea of letting our partners have multiple relationships with other adults. And as you mentioned, it doesn't necessarily need to be sexual. It can be like a deep emotional connection Mm -hmm. to somebody that you're not sleeping with. 
But even so, in some ways, that's even more threatening to a partner, right? Or an intellectual connection mm-hmm. with somebody. So what do you think of this issue of jealousy, Yeah. right? Okay, so there's two issues that I think are very interesting about jealousy. First of all, uh, of with your kids um, and other grown-ups. And second of all, with your... Um, Husband, quote unquote. So Colin Tai says something really interesting about jealousy. She says, yes, this emotion exists, but no, you shouldn't take it as a drive for uh, making decisions. So jealousy exists just like hate and fear, and it's just like a human emotion. But just like you're not allowed to make decisions, you're not supposed to be making decisions according to just like your other emotions, like negative emotions, jealousy should just be one of those emotions, which you are supposed to... Um, somehow um, feel, but not base your life choices on that emotion. And then with between partners, I think the jealousy really kicks in because your 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 spouse is an asset. I mean, you only have a certain amount of hours every day, yeah, to get everything done. So if your partner is going away and giving away his time, his assets to somebody else, how are you supposed to survive? So, but in a, in, a, in a society where um, that those assets aren't so scarce because you're getting um, help and you know support and love from other people. Your husband or your mate, um, right? So it's less so, essential, right? Yes, yeah. Le- yeah, because you're getting you're getting things from other people, or so, or there's like socialized daycare or their yes. kitchen or their their decisions that you have to that are being made more socially that you don't necessarily have to like agonize over everything and yes. do everything with just one other person. Yeah, that other person do, isn't your only source of of, of your, isn't your only source of yeah. support. Yeah. And then about your children, I think it's very interesting because I come from Israel where kibbutzim uh, were very popular for many years and people really were raised separately from their parents. And today lots of people complain about that. Um, how how like emotionally wrong it was both for the parents and for the children. And that's fine. I accept that. But it's very interesting to note that once you become a parent, you start taking care of your kid and you take care of him and you don't take care of other kids. So if you're in the playground and your kid gets hurt, you go to your kid, but you don't take care of other kids. So part of taking care of your kids is excluding all other kids from care. And this is really interesting because in Israel, when you have a baby, um, the first thing they do to your baby is they take it away and they put it in a big room full of other babies. And then when you come and see your baby for the first time, you don't have a clue who your baby is. You have to start looking for the name. But the first minute when you walk into that room full of babies... You kind of feel that all the all these babies could be your baby, and you kind of feel this kind of general love to these babies because really they could hand you any baby. It's not like a like a Bluetooth device that only <laughs> goes uh, only connects to one specific baby. Whatever baby they would give you, that would be your baby. And I think it's also very uh, interesting as a mother, like went through breastfeeding. If you when you're breastfeeding, I know a lot of mothers have this, and you're walking down the street and you hear a baby crying that isn't yours. You have this sense of, of like the milk kind of comes down. You have a sense that you really want to feed that baby. <laughs> so it's not this like biological thing that you only needed to only that l- motherly love is associated with one child. No, I really believe that this is completely um, a social a social s- construct because naturally, I don't know, as a mother, I just felt like naturally it. It wasn't right. Like, I fell in love with my kids because I'm raising them, not because of this, like, some sort of specific biological Mm. connection that has to do with, like, um, 
Yeah. So why do you think the the, in the, the, the situation of the kibbutzim, right, where children mm-hmm. were, were being raised in mm-hmm. common? I mean, are when you say that there have been a lot of criticisms of that, yeah. is it from the children or is it from people outside? It's it's only from people inside. Basically, that's what I heard. Like the children and the parents. The parents grieve not having, not be able, being able to cuddle their kids, not being able to see their kids in pajamas. Um, to, to, to like kind of spend this like you know in the mornings when you wake up before they go to school in the mm. evenings all this like cozy hometown and house, t- house time and I think the kids also feel this way um, so I think the kibbutzim just like just like kind of they they, they had the the um, ratios the ratios off so it maybe was too extreme like the, the, the amount of times the kids spend independently was probably just too much. Uh-huh. Like, I see. Yeah, I think it was that kind so of it's like a for it's there's a formula yeah. that has to be yeah. an algorithm yeah. that has to be sorted yeah. out here. Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously like the idea of the communal child raising probably mm-hmm. comes from Kolontai, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of those people definitely um came from Eastern Europe, right? They yes. had a lot of these early socialist ideas and they were probably reading people like Kolontai yeah. and thinking about this and implementing it. They were definitely like this amazing woman Miriam Baratz, she was the founder of the first uh, kibbutz in Israel. She started a kibbutz with three other men. And and they were this like traveling society, three men and a woman, and they lived completely in equality. She was this like radical. She had her hair cut short. She was dressed like a man. She was beautiful. And they basically just traveled in together, the four, this group of four, until they settled on somewhere and started a kibbutz. And she said that she cannot start a kibbutz if she would, in the end, be stuck with the kids alone and she couldn't do the things that she loves, which was to be with the cows. So she advocated for um, this joint child-rearing um, system, and also she practiced, like, um, communal breastfeeding. Like, she used to breastfeed the, the kids, whoever didn't have, like, the mom, if the mom didn't have enough milk. And, yeah, so, and she definitely was into radical, uh, you know, Soviet, I mean, it was before, but, yeah, it was, like, 1909. 1909. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. So, um, so we're almost out of time, and I really want to thank you for talking about your research, and, and can you just say a few things about, like, your project going forward, like, what you're hoping to do and write about in terms of, from a from the perspective of an architect or a yes. design, a person interested in design? Great. So, yeah, so I'm very... I'm really interested in finding um, domestic settings that offer something that's beyond this uh, exclusive, small, jealousy, um, how do you say, something that's been um, paved by jealousy. How would you say that? Like, structured by this... Structured by... By this, these ideas of uh, exclusion and jealousy. And um, so to try and find historical case studies that suggest a more open, flexible, sexual, um, communal way of living. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So Mm -hmm. would you include experiments like co-housing in Scandinavia or, you know, having a bunch of flatmates or, or or is this, you want it to be much more sort of structural, like built into the design of the, of the, of the environment? No, I mean, yeah, no, for sure. I'm very interested in things that just happen by, by let's say civilians or Mm -hmm. by people who just like kind of take their the things into their own hands. Yeah, but for me, it's it's definitely important that there's some sort of ideological rigor to it, that it's not just like a survivalist strategy, mm-hmm. but there that there is some sort of belief, like larger belief that, that life should be different. So, for instance, a lot of people are, are get together um, as a sort of means to survive uh, financially or... And this is great, yeah? But for me, it's more interesting to think about 
beyond the survivalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, into the ideological. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. All right. Fantastic. So that was my conversation with the very brilliant graduate student, Elisheva Levy, who's also a internationally known artist. I included a link to her website in the program notes to this show. So if you're interested, check her out. She's got some really interesting sculptural pieces. And I am going to say goodbye for now and hopefully get another graduate student or another fan of Alexandra Kolontai onto the show for the next episode to read or discuss uh, Make Way for Winged Eros. Thank you very much for listening. This is AK47. Please subscribe if you haven't already done so and keep up the good fight.